Great stuff. Let's turn back again then, shall we, to the book of Galatians, which you're working through. And we're going to read tonight from Galatians chapter 4 on into the first verse of chapter 5. <clears throat> so, um, can we get the... Uh, oh, sorry, right, okay. One second, we'll have that up. But uh, we'll start anyhow from uh, Galatians 4 and verse 21. Tell me, says Paul to these people he's writing to, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar, Hagar is a slave woman in the story, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written... Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of a desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Oh, we've got the reading up there as well. That's pretty excellent. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way was persecuted, uh, sorry, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. That's quoting from the book of Genesis from the story once again. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's brilliant. I'm sorry, I wasn't really asking for the reading. Well done anyhow. That's great. If we can get the PowerPoint up, that's, that's uh, what uh, I really want to have. That's brilliant. So I've called this one Born for Freedom because this is what Paul's saying at the end of it, isn't it? We are children of freedom. God has made us free in a way which the Galatians he was writing to were in danger of forgetting. You remember, Galatians were probably the group of churches that Paul knew best because he came from his ho home area. He was born in, in uh, the city of Tarsus in Cilicia and uh, the gospel spread north from Antioch around the whole area, which is to the south of Turkey. And Paul helped himself uh, in, a, in his first missionary journey to plant some churches there. He certainly went around and strengthened them all. And they were the jewel in the crown to start with really uh, of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Because Paul could point to the churches in, in the south of Turkey and say, look, God's made them free. They used to be pagans, some of them. They used to be uh, Jews, but bound in, in, in having to keep all sorts of laws and ceremonies and never being very sure whether God was pleased with them or not. And now they've been set free. And then to his horror, he realized that somebody had got into that church and started preaching, uh, those churches, and started preaching the wrong thing. Who it was, he says several times on the way through Galatians, I don't know who's done this to you, but I try to find them. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's worried about who it is and what they're doing. But it's clear that the message they were bringing 
What they've been saying to the Galatians is, you people need to keep the whole Jewish law. Okay, you want to be Christians, and you're saved by faith. Jesus died for you on the cross. He's the Messiah, the true King of Israel. Yes, that's, that's okay. But actually, if you really want to follow him properly, get yourself circumcised. Keep all of the festivals. Do this, do that. Only eat kosher food. All sorts of rules and regulations that they had in their innocence, they wouldn't need to keep. Suddenly, they were being told they had to. Now, that was not what Paul had told them. And so, in his horror, he writes Galatians, uh, the letter to the Galatians to them. And uh, <clears throat> at this point in the letter, he goes into this strange argument, doesn't he, about Hagar and Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. A story from the book of Genesis. So let's have a look at that. What is the story that lies behind it? Well, you find it in two passages uh, in, in, in Genesis, in chapter 16, and on in chapter 20. And, and, and basically, it goes like this, although you probably remember hearing it uh, somewhere before. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Although he was very, very old, Abraham and Sarah had been promised they would have a son by God. They weren't just going to die in the promised land. They were going to have children who were going to go on and become a great nation. And uh, uh, Abraham uh, was getting pretty old. And by the time he was 85, Sarah was pretty convinced that this was not going to happen. So she persuaded Abraham to sleep with her Egyptian maid, Hagar, to make a baby happen. And this being the way of biology, a baby happened. <laughs> and uh, uh, this baby was called Ishmael, and Hagar became pregnant uh, and she was absolutely triumphant. And she started giving herself superior airs. I am carrying my master's baby. I am I'm, I'm more important than you are. And Sarah, who was not the most docile woman in the entire Old Testament, uh, didn't like this very much. And so she persuaded Abram to cast out Hagar into uh, the desert. And Hagar wandered off into the desert of Shin. And there, God said to her, look, go back. Have the baby. Stay with your, your, your uh, mistress because there is a plan in all of this. So she was persuaded to go back. And the next thing that happens in the story is that 14 years after Ishmael's born, then Isaac arrives. Sarah finds to her amazement that she is actually pregnant. And Abram, at age 100, <laughs> is going to have another son. And this one is the promised one. Well, Sarah was, was worried that uh, Abram would let him inherit and she was also a bit annoyed because Hagar, uh, although she now knew her place, she had a boy who didn't. And Ishmael knew he was the firstborn of Abram. And 14-year-old boys and babies tend not to get on too well sometimes. So instead of looking after his little brother, he started tormenting him a bit, mocking him. And so in the end, Sarah said, this maid has got to go. And Abram said, well, you did that last time and she's come back. No, she's got to go this time, I mean it. And God said, uh, Abram, let her go. I have a plan for Hagar as well. He's going to be the mother of another great nation, but it won't be one that I've promised you. And so it's through Isaac that your line is going to go, let her go. And then you get the rest of the story, of course, that uh, you've probably uh, you remember from Sunday school. This time, Hagar goes into the desert and nearly dies. The son is desperate for water. She realizes the sun is beating down on her and there's, there's, there's no way she's going to survive. And an angel of God uh, leads Hagar to where there is water and repeats God's promise. Listen, Hagar, God has not forgotten you. The God who sees you is still on your case and he wants you to be the mother of a very great nation. So this is a story that lies behind Paul's argument here in chapter four. 
And you might think, well, why? And it says uh, in our, our translation, these things may be taken figuratively. And in the old authorized version, that's translated, which things are an allegory? And that's what the word really is in Greek. Allegory. What is an allegory? Well, uh, when you think of an allegory in, in English, you might think of something like Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the story of a man who's on a journey. But it's not really the story of a man who's on a journey. Because what it's about is the different trials and, and tribulations and benefits and blessings that you go through as you go from the city of destruction, from being without God, to the heavenly city. And so everything in that story in Pilgrim's Progress has another meaning. And it's the other meaning that's important. The story of Christian on his way to the, the heavenly city isn't that important. Or you might think of uh, uh, George Orwell's story, Animal Farm. Uh, and that, again, is an allegory because it's a story about animals who take over the farm and get rid of the farmer. And uh, then everything goes to the bad when the pigs start taking charge of everybody else and they turn into tyrants and farmers themselves. And what that really is is an allegory of the Russian Revolution. And Orwell, as a disillusioned left-winger, saw that when you have something like that happening in history, ultimately the people who have been oppressed will become the oppressors. And everything in the story can be traced back to something that happens in the timetable of the Russian Revolution up to the time where Orwell's writing the book. It's a story that means something else. And the important meaning is not the story that you read on the surface of things, it's the story that lies behind it. And so this is something that's bothered people. When Paul says here, of course, this story about Abraham and uh, Ishmael, it's all an allegory. People think, well, can you do that with anything in the Bible then? Can you really be sure that what you're reading in the Bible is, on the surface of it, is what God is really saying? And so all kinds of secretive cults are kind of saying, well, we can tell you the real secret hidden message of the Bible because, as you know, the Bible is very allegorical and it doesn't mean what it seems to mean on the surface. Well, if that's the case, how do you work out what the Bible actually means? Actually, in Paul's day, the Jews had a very careful method for understanding the message of Scripture. They believed it was true on all sorts of different levels, and they had a message which... Um, a method which was probably taught to Paul by Gamaliel when he was a student in Jerusalem. And it works a bit like this. God's revelation comes down to us. But we need to rise up in our understanding to meet it so that we make sense of it. And there are four levels, they said, in human understanding. The first, most basic level is what the text is usually supposed to say. And they use the word peshat for that level explanation. That, that word simply means explain. And so the lowest level is, this is what it seems to say on the surface. But there's another level above that. And the second level is what they call remas. And remas means hinted. <laughs> Sometimes they said, there are meanings in God's word that you don't see on the surface of things. They're there behind the official surface meaning. And you can see, if you, if you look at Scripture, that that is actually the case. There are some things that you would not understand unless you read other bits of Scripture. That's why we need to look at the whole of the Bible together and help let one Scripture interpret another. Because what you read in one passage can be amplified in all sorts of ways by what you read somewhere else. That's nowhere more true, obviously, than when you compare the New Testament to the Old Testament. Because the New Testament unlocks all kinds of things in the Old Testament. And when a Christian reads, for instance, Isaiah 53, 
He doesn't just read it in the way that the Jews of, of the time of Isaiah would have read it. He sees in that a reflection of the cross, a reflection of Jesus. When you read Isaiah 14, like, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn? You see echoes in that passage, not just of the prince of Tyre in Isaiah's day. You see in it echoes of a cosmic conflict in which God and Satan were engaged from the start of human history onwards and so on. So there's that level too. But they said there's a third level above them. And the third level is Darish. And the word Darish means inquiring. And they say, this is why study is important. Because the more you study scripture, the more you get out of it. And Paul learned all of this at the feet of Gamaliel, and I'm sure he would have agreed with most of it, and he did practice most of it uh, in the way that he went to work in Scripture. But there was another level that people said there was as well. This was a level that they called sot. And the word sot means secret. And they claimed that there was a mystical meaning in Scripture, which only people who were really, really experienced and godly rabbis could ever understand. Normal people could never understand that. And so they said there were these four levels, and you climb up from the one to the other in your understanding of scripture. This actually is a diagram of the whole system. You see it's called PRDS from the uh, initial letters of the different words in Hebrew that are used. And that's because uh, the Hebrew word for paradise is pardes. So this is a pardes message. And the idea is that as you go through these four different levels, you get closer and closer to the very presence of God. You're approaching paradise by the most direct route. Well, I think what Paul's doing here in this part of Galatians chapter 4 is what is, is roughly speaking the third of these methods, the, the, the one that, uh, that, that uh, puts things together and draws something out of it by extra special study and says there is more beyond the surface of it. And I think that's fair enough. So you might say, well, okay, if he can do this with Scripture, does that mean that anybody can get any meaning out of it they want? How can we be sure that what we're reading is actually what God wants us to have? And I think there are some things you need to say about it. And we will get into the passage after this, I promise. This is just to put it in context for you. The first thing is that Jewish teachers, even the ones who believed in this four-part system, always insisted that you cannot ever forget the surface meaning. That's what everything else is anchored to. Whatever else you get out of a passage, you mustn't make it mean something different from what it means on the surface. That's still important. For example, in the Middle Ages... Uh, St. Augustine, uh, well, it wasn't really the Middle Ages, it was about 500 AD that he did this, but uh, he said that if you look into the story of the, 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 the uh, uh, Good Samaritan, what you see is the story of salvation. A man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's what we all do, isn't it, when we fall into sin? We're created innocent, and we go downhill from there. And we approach the city of the devil as angels. And of course, as he goes down the city, he's set upon by robbers, by bandits. And that represents the devil and his angels. And he's left wounded and bleeding by the side of the road. Along comes the good Samaritan. That, of course, is Jesus. He's on a donkey. And donkey is the church because it's the church that brings Jesus to us. He binds up the man's wounds and takes him to the, 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 the inn. And the inn, of course, represents the church as well because that's where we're looked after. And the innkeeper is the pope. And um, uh, Jesus, or the Good Samaritan, I should say, gives to the innkeeper uh, some coins. And those two coins are the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then he says, and this, of course, is a dead giveaway. I'm going now, but I will be back soon. And we all know Jesus is coming again. So that proves it, doesn't it? And Calvin, in, in the 16th century, this is crazy. This is daft. 
That story is about who is my neighbor. That's why Jesus told it. You've just made it mean something completely different. You're taking all the impact away from it. That's why the Jews said, whatever other meanings you find in Scripture, you mustn't take away the literal meaning. In fact, in the Talmud, they said this, a verse cannot depart from its plain meaning. So it's, it, we don't look at stories like Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and so on and say, well, it could mean anything. This, don't know what it means. Actually, the plain meaning is where you have to start from. Second, when you look at the way that the New Testament deals with Scripture, it insists on the plain meaning again and again. It doesn't play fancy tricks with Scripture. And what Paul is doing here is very unusual in the New Testament. In fact, I think there's only one other place where he does it, and that's 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, verse 4, where he talks about the Israelites in the desert getting water from a rock, and he said the rock is Christ. In other words, this is a picture of Jesus as well. And so pictures are very, very rare in that kind of way. They exist, but that's not the way we need to interpret Scripture all the time. And the, the important thing uh, about the word allegory here is it doesn't really mean an allegory in the modern sense of the story. Which this means this, this means this, and this means this. It just means figurative speech, a way of presenting a picture. And uh, that's why uh, the New International Version from which we read uh, just says these things can be taken figuratively. You'll find most modern translations do that with it. This is the New Living Translation, for instance. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. That's a pretty good translation. Good News Bible. These things can be understood as a figure. The Contemporary English Version. All of this has another meaning as well. Each of the two women stands for one of the agreements that God made with his people. So what Paul is not saying is, this is the real, hidden, secret, esoteric meaning of Scripture. What he's saying is, this is an illustration that you guys might find helpful. So, if all of that's true, then I think we've got three questions to, 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 to answer in the rest of our time here. What are those three questions? For basically this. First, why does Paul do this thing here? He doesn't do this kind of thing anywhere else in his letters, so why does he put this little story in uh, at this point? I'll have a look at that in a moment. Second, what is he using it to say? Because that's more important, isn't it? And the third thing is, oops, the third thing? We've just gone somewhere else. Yeah, stopped. The third thing is, anyway, what's he using it to say to us? Is there any way we can get that back? It's gone. <laughs> Welcome to Great Parts Chapel. <laughs> Oh dear, not to worry. There's no way you can start it again? Maybe we better put this on the prayer chain. <laughs> okay, not to worry. Let's just, oh yep, there we are. What does it mean to us now is the third question. And that's where I want to finish in a few minutes. So let's see if we can keep this going. If, I hope I pressed the right buttons there, but if I didn't, I'll try harder this time. So first of all, why does Paul use this story? Well, I think it's because he's speaking to a bunch of Christians who are very pro-Jewish. These teachers who've come into their midst have started saying to him, look, you've got to respect the Jewish heritage of the Christian faith. You've got to keep all of these rules. So they've been teaching them in a traditional Jewish way. And Paul knows that these Christians, some of whom were Jewish to start with, some of whom were Gentiles, are now thinking like Jews. 
And you remember how Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. Uh, to the Gentile, and spoke like a Gentile. Paul knows how to do it. He knows how to teach in a way that these people will understand. He knows the buttons to press. And so he's deliberately using a Jewish kind of an argument <laughs> to make his point. And he does that if you look right through uh, these, these two chapters, three and four. Chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians are where he's talking about how horrified he is that the whole thing's happened and giving his credentials for writing to them and setting the record straight about all of the, the slanders that have been made about him. Then he starts into his real argument in chapter 3, and he does it in a very, very Jewish way. After his two introductory chapters, Paul does certain things. First of all, he asks him to think about Abraham. That's a great place to start with. Abraham, the father of us all, if we're Jewish. And so he talks about Abraham in chapter 3 and says Abraham is justified by faith, not by the works he did. He didn't keep the law because the law didn't exist in his day. And so he starts with Abraham. Then he goes on, and we've seen all of this in, in, in previous weeks, to talk about uh, a barrage of Old Testament uh, quotations. And that's chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. If you, if you look at what's in there, uh, he talks about, uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law of God. The righteous will live by faith. The law is not faced by faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Cursed is everyone who has on a tree. And he's just quoting the Old Testament and putting it into context. Of them. So they're thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This guy understands the Old Testament much better than we thought he did. And then he goes on to, after that to argue about the details of a text in the way that a Jewish commentator would. That's in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he says, listen, uh, God says uh, these promises to Abraham and to his seed. And he says the scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, singular, one person, Jesus. That's just the kind of detail that a Jewish teacher would throw out. And so he's doing it in a very Jewish way. Because these are people who think that Jewishness is great. And so he wants to make it as, as, as obvious to them as possible. And of course, the, the, the last thing he do, does is uh, spends time in verses 21 to 25 arguing that the law and God's promises don't cancel one another out. You don't have the one and not the other. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you, you say the law is yours, it's rubbish, throw it away. No, God had a purpose for it. But that purpose is now over. So he does all of that, and then I think what he's doing in chapter 4, as his pièce de résistance, is to say, think about the Abraham-Hagar story, because that's as Jewish as you can get. And he's using a Jewish method of exegesis. Let's see what we can make these things figuratively mean. And so he does it in that way. So this is the way the argument goes, it seems to me. First of all, in chapters 1 and 2, don't abandon the true gospel, he says. I received it directly from Jesus. Not some teacher or human group. It was accepted by the apostles. I showed Peter he was in the wrong. It's all those points in chapters 1 and 2. You probably remember that stuff from when we, we went through it. If not, go back and have another look again. So he's making his credentials because he knows these teachers that have come into the, gentle, the, the uh, uh, Galatian churches have been casting all sorts of aspersions on Paul and where he got his message from. Then in chapter 3, he talks about the fact that you're Abram's children if you follow Jesus. And I can give you lots of Jewish reasons, he says, for believing just that. Chapter 4, um, he talks about the fact that God has brought you out of slavery into freedom. That's the first part of chapter 4, where he makes a point. And then, at this point, uh, in tonight's passage, he comes up with his clinching argument for the whole thing. Just look at what the Old Testament says about Abram's family. If that doesn't make it clear to you, nothing ever will. So I think that's why Paul is doing what he's doing at this point in Galatians. But more importantly than that, we need to think of what is he actually saying? 
And what he's drawing using this story is a contrast between two children, between Isaac on the one hand and Ishmael on the other side, between the slave woman's children and the free woman's children. He's, we are children of the free woman. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, here are some of the contrasts he's talking about here. The first one is he says the slave woman's children is born naturally. Ishmael was born simply because Abraham slept with Hagar. There was nothing supernatural about it. It was just plain, simple human biology. Um, nothing, nothing special about that. But Isaac was born supernaturally, born by miracle. Isaac would never have happened but for the grace of God. And that there's a difference, says Paul, between people who are just people and people who are born again. Because you can be born just when a, a mummy and a daddy coming together. But you can only be born again. You can only become a member of God's family. An absolute miracle taking place. A miracle of God's grace that nobody could organize. Something that comes right out of the blue, even if you're 100 years old, <laughs> and takes you right into another world. The second thing says is that uh, uh, the children of the slave woman are associated with Mount Sinai. And uh, certainly Hagar was associated with Sinai. She came from Egypt, which was just on the other side of Sinai from where Abraham was. She went off into the wilderness of Shin on her first, first um, uh, uh, fleeing from Sarah. And that's just to the north of Sinai. Then she went to the desert, uh, which is to the south of Sinai, uh, when she was cast out again. So Hagar is associated with the land around Mount Sinai. And uh, Mount Sinai, of course, is where God gave the law. That was the place where the Jews said, listen, if you do these things, you will live. If you do them, you die. And Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy, behold, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. And to cut a long story short, they didn't, did they? And no human being has been able to do that ever. And that's why Paul talks in terms of slavery. Because the law, although God intended it for good, became a curse and a burden upon those people. How about the free woman's children? Well, they're associated with a different mountain, aren't they? They're associated with Mount Calvary. Because there, Jesus died to take our place. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took our blame. Took the bore the loss. We stand forgiven at the cross. And so we're free. We don't have to keep the law. We don't face God's wrath because somebody has faced it for us. And those laws that were uh, uh, the schoolmaster, as Paul puts it, to lead us to Christ are not necessary anymore because now we serve in the freedom of the Holy Spirit rather than the bondage of the law. The destiny of those people, he says, of the slave woman's children is slavery. They're always going to be slaves. They're never going to get away with that. But uh, the destiny of the free woman's children is freedom. A way of living which allows us to stand free in the fact that it's not our righteousness that counts. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And we've sung about that in royal robes we don't deserve. We can stand in his presence and praise his majesty. And so the contrasts keep coming, don't they, as Paul goes down the chapter. Um, he says, uh, the, 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 the children of the slave woman will persecute the others. 
he says, uh, that's still happening today. And what he's obviously saying uh, there is, listen, don't be surprised if as Christians, people who are naturally born but not spiritually born give you a hard time. Just like Ishmael gave Isaac a hard time when he was born. Persecution is a strong word for it, but you can see what Paul's talking about. The children of the slave woman are always going to be persecuted because they just do not understand what God has done and the miracle that's available to them. But the children of the free, unlike Ishmael, but like Isaac, are born of the Spirit of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who's made all this possible. And so it goes on then. The children of the slave woman are cast out with their mother. They have no future within the kingdom of God. The children of the free woman are heirs of the Father, and everything that belongs to the Father will one day belong to them. And in Christ, that's where we stand, heirs of the glory of God. And so he says, look, you want to be children of the slave woman? That's daft. The children of the slave woman live in the desert, uh, desert, desert lands. They're wild people, wild as a donkey, he says, and they won't have anywhere to call their own. The children of the, the free woman, well, they've got a home, haven't they? They're living in freedom and safety. And one of these days, they'll be in the presence of the one who made it all possible for them. So he says, there's your choice. You can either be children of the slave woman under the slavery of the law, or you can be free under the freedom that the gospel brings. Stand fast, therefore, in freedom, he says. Because when you look at it, what happens to the slave children in the end, they're burdened by a yoke of slavery. And what happens to the, the free woman's children in the end is that they can stand firm in liberty because God intended it should be that way. So that's his argument. It takes a bit of unscrambling, doesn't it? But to people who were being bombarded with, with Judaistic uh, propaganda, as these people were in southern Turkey, it must have come like a bolt of revelation, a shaft of light in on a situation that was starting to look a bit desperate. What does it say to us, though? This is the last thing we want to look at in the last few minutes, isn't it? What does it say to us today? I want to mention just five things very, very quickly indeed. The first thing is that it's okay to be keen, but keen about what? Paul says, look, you people, you're zealous, and there's nothing wrong about that. It's great to be zealous. He says in verse 18, just before our passage starts, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And we have got to be careful that our keenness to serve God and be ideal Christians doesn't lead us off in the wrong direction. Because that has so often led to judgmental attitudes in the church. Hmm, I'm doing better than him. Oh, I have a, a, a doctrine that she really understands, so I'm more important than her. God must be really pleased with me, but I don't know about those people over there. And we can, be, and we can pride ourselves on it was a, a sort of spiritual arrogance if we're not careful just because we're keen. When you look back at the history of the kind of church that Great Parks uh, stands in the line of, you see that very clearly, don't you? Back in the 1830s and 50s, the brethren were the keenest people around. And sadly, for many brethren churches, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but for many brethren churches, an arrogance set in. We are the people. We are the only real Christians here. We're not the only ones either. I was looking at a website last night of a Bible uh, college I'd never heard about in Northamptonshire, thinking, well, these people look quite good. Their statement of faith is all right. What's going on? But the more I read, the more I began to realize that these people consider themselves to be the only real Christians in Britain. I think, this is ridiculous. I mean, they believe in substance everything that we believe. 
Why can't we make a common cause? Why can't we be together with one another? And uh, I remember once uh, reading uh, an article in a magazine uh, which was about a little church that's just up the road from Belmont Chapel. And it belongs to a denomination which I won't name because I'm not trying to slang people tonight. But I couldn't believe the description of the church that was being given in the article. It was about, oh, Exeter is a wicked city and there aren't many Christians around and all of the churches are, are apostate. But the 15 of us are keeping on going. 15 Christians in the city. Do you know how many Christians there are in Exeter? Do you know actually that you've got a big church called Belmont Chapel just down the hill from you. Throw a brick out your window and you'll hit us. And we've said to you many, many times, look, anything we can do to keep you going, any help we can give you, any way we can reinforce your mission, and you've just said, no, 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 we'll, we'll do it ourselves, thank you. And it's tragic, isn't it? When your zeal leads you to cut yourself off from other people. And Paul saw that happening through the Galatian churches. They would not be real Christians any longer if they carried on the way they were going because they'd be cutting themselves off from the body of Christ. Second thing is, liberty means producing fruit naturally, not tiring ourselves out trying to do what we can. The bondage these people were coming into was the bondage of, I must keep this food, I must do that, and have I done this, and am I sure this food is kosher, and all the rest of it, simply because they wanted to please God. And God doesn't want that. God wants us to live in freedom. That doesn't mean ignoring the things he's commanded us to do. He wants us to do the right things, certainly. But he wants us to do the things because we want to please him. Our aim is to please him, not because we want to keep our nose clean so that one of these days we might just get into heaven. That's what we thought before we became Christians, wasn't it? That you have to earn your place in, in God's favor somehow, one way or another. This morning, one of the greatest uh, footballers in English history died, Jimmy Greaves, at the age of 81. And... Uh, on Twitter uh, right now, apparently, there are loads and loads of messages about him. And I was struck by one I noticed, which was, was, was uh, written by C.R. Delis, again, one of the great Spurs players of the past. And he said, you know, when the time comes for us all to go to the great goal scorer in the sky, I don't think I've ever heard God described as that before, but any, that's what he said. He said, it will not matter whether you won or lost, but how you played the game. I thought, Ozzy, you haven't got it yet. You really haven't got it. Because it doesn't matter how you play the game. What matters is if somebody has come into your life and swept it clean by taking your sins on himself and dying in your place. But people don't see that. And this is why Paul says it's so desperate to hang on to it because the natural inclination of human beings is to say, I must do something. I must make it right myself. I've got to work and work and work. And that's not the way it is. Third thing, this happens. Uh, producing fruit naturally, and we'll get to this in chapter 5, won't we? When we allow Christ to live his life in us through our faith in him. We talked about the exchange of life the other week. Do you remember in an earlier chapter of, of Galatians in chapter 2? And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, I've died, and yet I'm still alive. Now, how does that work? I've died to my old life, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm living Christ's life. I'm allowing him to live through my body. And that means I have a power in me that's able to keep God's law and please God. Although I'm still a sinner, my old life is still there. I still slip up from time to time. But basically the power of Christ is changing me from one degree of glory into another to become more and more the kind of person that God dreams of me being. The fourth thing is this. The mark of the true Christian is love. And it leads to a unity we never had before. 
And Paul's worry for the Galatians is that now they're, they're carving themselves off from other people. They're making themselves uh, argumentative and hard and difficult because um, it's, 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 it's splitting them, driving them into a corner. These people are zealous to win you over, he says, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us. And this is what bad religion always does, isn't it? It divides people. But people who belong to Christ, if they truly do belong to Christ, they belong together. They're part of the same family. And no matter if they come from different backgrounds and they have different habits and they buy different food when they go to the supermarket, they still belong together. That's one of the most amazing things about the gospel, Paul. And I've, I've got to admit that to, for me, traveling to lots of different places, meeting Christians from other cultures, sometimes whose language I don't understand, whose food I can hardly eat, you know, who have got a very different life story from me. It's magical to see the way that there is instantly a bond between us. Not just that we belong to the same club or something like that, but that there is a family relationship there from the start. We didn't bring it about. Jesus brought it about when he brought us both to faith. I remember the first time I went to Poland, to a youth camp there, standing in the kitchen one night of the camp where I was, and thinking, what on earth am I eating here? There's actually macaroni with blackberries. I've never since or before ever had macaroni with blackberries. But the Poles obviously thought it was good, so I had it too. And I was just thinking, I'm doing things I would never do at home with people who I really think are quite weird. But I love them, and they love me. That's incredible. And so we've got to hang on to that. We've got to hold that firm. Fifth and final point, then. We'll say more about unity next week, is this. What we're actually doing if we live in the way that God indicates here, is we are living out the plan God devised back before the foundation of the world. This is what God wanted for us. This is why God put his incredible plan of salvation into action. And I might just be a very, very small part of that plan. But when I live in the way that Jesus wants me to live, what I'm doing is helping to fulfill part of God's plan for the whole of creation. I'm living out a design that God had for me centuries, eons before I was thought of. <laughs> and that is absolutely incredible. Why would I want to live any other way? And so Paul says to them, right, that's your choice, guys. You can be children of the slave woman, but you don't really want that, do you? You can be good Jewish people if you're Jewish without necessarily keeping the laws anymore simply because God has put you in a liberty you would never have realized. Stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made you free. That's us tonight. We've taken just under an hour and a quarter today, so I hope you're happy with that. But uh, let's, let's, let's uh, pray together, shall we? And then we'll, we'll say a blessing. So, Heavenly Father, as we think about these things, we're conscious that we're not just raking over an old theological argument from 2,000 years ago. What we're doing as we uncover what Paul was talked about in his Jewish language is reminding ourselves of things that are really important for our life now. Help us not to get into bondage by thinking I must do this or I must do that in order to please God. Help us realize that we will never please you in our own strength because our righteousnesses, as Isaiah put it, are just like filthy rags. And we can't do too much about that. All we can do is cast ourselves on your mercy Allow Jesus to live his life through us and become bit by bit like him. 
help our leaders this week as we go out there reflect his character, his winsomeness, his graciousness and his wisdom more than ever before as we give ourselves to him once again, right at the start of the week, to serve him with all our heart. We want to be people who could say, like the Apostle Paul, we make it our aim to please him. And in all we do over this next week, the big things, the small things, the trivial things, the important things, the unexpected things, the routine things, in all of those things, help us please him as we never have before. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us now and evermore. Amen.